The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Valerie, her guests, and callers. Now here's your host, Valerie Kirkgaard. I am your host. I am here. I'm delighted to be here. Um, April the 8th, 2009. Hey, you're listening to Waking Up in America, and we create dynamic radio dialogues and issues that matter. And if credit doesn't matter, my God, I don't know what does. Um, And if what's happening inside of that industry and how it's affecting us, doesn't matter. <laughs> this is going to be a very interesting show because I've got a very amazing guest. You know, we've actually been doing Waking Up in America for 22 years now. This is our 22nd year, and um, we really appreciate any help you have um, giving us contacts or helping us spread the show um, into more and more neighborhoods. And you can call me at 310-455-8623. That's 310-455-8623, and I'll be delighted to connect with you. Uh, we're having a really good time, and um, if you if you come up with some kind of a question that you want to put onto the uh, show here today, you can simply email me at val, V-A-L, at wakingupinamerica.com, and I'll pop that question on the air. We're on the air today with Ellen Brown. I'll tell you more about her in a few minutes, and also with Gail Ellen, um, another remarkable human being. We're going to be talking about the web of debt today, so... Shoot those email questions to us, and um, I'll put it on the air if it if it works. So, to get things started off today, I think it's important that we remember what our forefathers offered offered us. You know, we're Americans, <clears throat> and as Americans, we have a uh, national nationalism sense of pride. Um, who we are is what America is known for, and we're truth, justice, and freedom, and the American way. What is that American way? I say the best thing that represents what the American way is is the the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you'd put your hand over your heart right now, join me in that, and we'll do the Pledge of Allegiance before we start the show. Um, It's a good place to start from. (laughs) I like it. So I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, big word there, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'll stand for that. That's a good thing. So our program is about absolutely creating that in the highest way that you could possibly do that. Um, I'm actually an Olympic torch bearer, so any of you guys out there in the audience that carry torches, let me know. And you can carry a torch for marriage or your spiritual organization or great people that you know, things that touch your heart and move your heart. Mine was touched and moved by the Olympic flame. I'm becoming a drop of flame in that 2,000-year-old standard. So Sidious Altius Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger, that's what the UN is all about, and that's what the Olympics are all about, and that's what ideal an ideal world is all about, swifter, higher, stronger. 
And when that happens, love is automatically present. So you don't have to worry about that love wasn't mentioned. Our guests actually come from all different areas and fields in life, from internationally known J.J. Virgin to um, Deepak Chopra to Mary Louise Zeller. Bob Costa of the Home Shopping Network says we're doing radio that will change the world. You bet we are. And you can join us and we can accelerate this. That's what Ellen H. Brown and I were talking about before the show. And she's written a book called Web of Debt. So any of you on your computers, hop over to webofdebt.com so that you can follow along with Ellen and what she's up to. She even has an ebook for sale on this. So if you happen to hear a telephone ringing or a dog barking or an angel singing, you know we call from our homes and offices all over the world to cause this program, and that's how you get to hear Gail Ellen, who's in charge of beauty and uh, protocol for the Waking Up in America team here. So, Gail Ellen, wel- welcome to Waking Up in America. And um, Thank you. I know you're going to have to leave during the show, a uh, short while into it. So uh, I wanted to introduce to our listeners Ellen H. Brown. And Ellen H. Brown, actually, she's an attorney. <laughs> she wasn't, well, I think once you're Ellen, I think, aren't you, once you're trained as an attorney, aren't you ever an attorney that sometimes just not practicing? Yes, I'm definitely still an attorney. Yeah, she's definitely, I don't think it goes away. Like, piece of torch bearer, does that go away? It's the difference of whether you pay $100 or $500 on your, on your bar dues. Exactly. I'm a marriage family child counselor. I was trained that way 3,000 hours of it. You better believe it. But I have an inactive license, and then I go around and do what I want. Right. <laughs> you know, I do it the way I want to do it. Well, I'm happy to have you here today. Um, you've heard the word, you know, web of debt. You've heard the word attorney. It sounds like you're going to be talking to one kind of person. Then incorporate the fact that 10 of her other books were actually on healing and nutrition. So you get a very interesting person here. Um, you sound like you're like 35 or 40, and I, I, I promised you I wouldn't say how old you actually are on the show. But let's I'm trying just, to lower my voice. You try to lower your voice. However, I said that when that uh, estrogen went away. Uh, yep. Well, I'm not going to say anything about that because I make it a point never to reveal a true age of the guest request. No. However, what I want you to know is that the reason she sounds buoyant and young, and she is still buoyant and young, is because she's doing the work that she was meant to do. And, Gail, I have to tell you, this is almost like a meant-to-do series that's happening here. Yeah, I'll say, and uh, I have to say that uh, Ellen's uh, book is, I think, one of the most important books that you will read uh, to have an understanding of the monetary mess that we're in, and she gives an excellent historical overview uh, with some ideas about correcting the problem, and uh, I'm hoping that she can address a couple of those things for us. Now, you actually, it's, it's possible for people to actually download this book, am I correct? Uh, yes, it's available as an ebook or, or in hard copy. Now, here we are, we're sitting at the beginning of the program, poised to really step into a very interesting conversation. What would you like to see the outcome of your um, your conversation here, your dialogue with us on waking up in America to be? If, if you could have one result, what would that be? Uh, well, there's a lot of um, suspicion, fear, negativity going around right now, but I actually have, feel positive about the whole situation. And I think there are solutions, and so that's what I would like to convey, that there are solutions and that we need to get together and work toward implementing them. 
Well, it's interesting that you're you're mentioning that because lately with the G20 conference, and I don't know where you on that, Gail, feel free to jump in. <clears throat> with the G20 conference, um, I had a lot of good feelings about even just Queen Elizabeth putting her arm around Michelle Obama's waist. And on one hand, I see, you know, I listen to the, the I can hear people in the world changing and becoming more generous again just out of what's being pulled forth. And at the same time, I'm receiving emails every day telling me how crooked the system is and that Barack Obama has turned his eyes sideways on some of it. And I still believe in everything that's going on and what's being done, but I just wondered how does one reconcile oneself with this kind of information? Well, my particular thing, of course, is how to fix the money system. And um, Abraham Lincoln did it. How did he do it? Kennedy tried to do it, and they both got shot. So it seems to me that, uh, well, they did it by going back to publicly issued money. I'm sorry, they did what? By going back to government-issued money. Everybody thinks that our money is issued by the government, but and they blame the government for everything that goes wrong, but it's not. All of our money is issued privately by banks in the form of loans. Would you explain that and also how the Federal Reserve works? Um, yes, the Federal Reserve is a private banking corporation which prints our national currency and lends it to the U.S. government. And it's privately owned, right? Right, privately owned. And at one time, it got the interest for that, but now it rebates the interest after deducting its costs. Ever since the 60s, when Wright Patman was head of the House Banking and Currency Committee and he tried to get them nationalized, he failed. But what he did succeed in doing was getting them to agree to rebate their profits after they deducted their costs. So that's actually a good thing. And so that's where I, th- where I think we're going. It, because they rebate their costs and because the federal debt is never paid off, it hasn't been paid off since Andrew Jackson, basically when the, borrow, when the government borrows from the Fed, the Federal Reserve, it's borrowing interest-free, except for some costs, a service charge basically, and it's rolled over indefinitely. So basically it is... Uh, creating the money supply, which is what it so, is doing. So we don't. So what about this, these trillions of dollars of debt? How is that related to this? Uh, well, there's a, there was a ten trillion dollar debt, and now we just uh, now we're up to eleven trillion dollars. But two weeks ago, the Federal Reserve said that they were going to make a um, trillion dollars in loans available. That's all money that's just created on their books. And everybody's shocked and appalled and says, oh, this will be hyperinflationary. That, see, that's what I want to write about or what, what I want to convey <clears throat> is these things that look like they're not so good. If you look at them in a different way, they're actually quite good. That's why you had to be here today. Um, but if they came right out and said, uh, we're going to stand up to the banks, we're going to stand up to the Bank for International Settlements, we're, which is actually that the hub of the private central banking system worldwide and which is trying to get a global currency issued privately. That's that's their goal. I'm sorry, I don't understand how global currency would be issued privately. Uh, well, all money is issued privately, and right now, you know, part of that G20 thing was the uh, special drawing rights. That Did you see that part where the, there would be a reserve currency that's issued by the IMF? No, and that's the International Monetary Fund, right? Right. Um, well, they, this may be getting pretty far afield, but but anyway, every <laughs> let's wander for I, a I, moment. I'd like to understand it actually. <laughs> okay. Um, 
the special drawing rights were uh, have been issued since 1971 when we went off the gold standard, and what they were supposed to do was to provide reserves because gold was no longer available as a reserve. But what they really do, um, special drawing rights are printed and generally lent to third world countries that need the money. Okay, so a drawing right is like some kind of a chit? It's it's yeah it's a right to money but the thing is nobody trades in SDRs so you have to take your you take your SDR and you trade it in for dollars so basically or some other major currency so basically the the big countries are still on the hook for for the money so it's really just expanding the um, um, expanding the, the capacity of the smaller countries yeah the, and the money that we give to the third world. Uh-huh. Um, so we're not actually really, well, we are kind of, but we're not really. Yeah, so it's not what it's cracked up to be. It's cra- it, 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 People are thinking that it was going to be a global currency, but it's not traded as a currency. But the fact that they're moving in that direction, you can certainly see them um, manipulating that around. Anyway, the Bank for International Settlements actually caused this uh, credit crunch. I'm sorry, the bank for what? The Bank for International Settlements is the head of the private central banking system. It all goes back. So that's the BIS thing. Yeah, they're in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, it goes back to the Rothschilds. Amschel Rothschild said and famously said in 1791, "Allow me to issue and uh, control a nation's currency, and I care not who makes the laws." <laughs> and that's what they've been up to ever since. Well, don't you think the 1820? Um, Waterloo thing had a lot to do with this too. I mean, wasn't that to me? That's when it started. Right. That was Nathan Rothschild um, when uh, the British actually won at Waterloo, and he went. And pre- it was the, it was the mother of all insider trades, where he went and leaned against the walls with the where the bonds were being traded, as looking dejected as, as if <laughs> as if the British had lost. The biggest con. Yeah. Um, uh, for for listeners, he, what he did was. He let the English think that Napoleon was winning, and then the Russians came in and helped out. But he pretended like the um, that Napoleon was still winning, and he went home and, as you said, leaned on the building. What he was actually doing is he sold all of his stock that would have been related to if Napoleon had won, and then he sat back and waited while everybody else sold their stock. Then he bought it all up for pennies on the dollar, and then he went over and did it in France. Yeah, so he basically owned England after that. He owned England and he owned France as well. So that's pretty much, if anybody thinks this was just George Bush or something, or even just of the century, au contraire. Right. It's a 300-year Ponzi scheme. We've come to the <laughs> it is, literally. No, I totally get it. It's, uh, it's astounding. That's the way banking works, that they lend money, they create the money in their books, they lend it, and then they take back more than they lend. They lend the principal, but they don't lend the interest. Well, uh, Gail, you had a question. Yeah. Are you still here? Yeah, I just I I wondered about uh, the standard for our money now. I mean, I think the gold standard doesn't exist anymore. I mean, they have to have a standard for the value, do they not, Ellen? And what is that now? And how would we um, establish that again? They don't, and that's that's why small countries have gotten. Um, for instance, in the Southeast Asian crisis, the, the whole goal there was to to suppress these small countries. Or Mexico, we actually destroyed the peso by short selling. We, meaning the, the big Wall Street banks, right. went in and short sold the peso. When was that? Uh, I think it was in '94, somewhere in there. Um, 
so the reason that the Mexicans are coming up over the borders to get jobs here is that we've destroyed we destroyed their economy down there. I mean, they've got every they should have everything they need. They've got oil. They've got lots of resources. Um, and the way we've manipulated these smaller countries was because the currencies float against each other. There is no standard, and so the so the big speculators, George Soros or whatever, can go in there and massively short sell the currency and cause cause investors to flee from the currency. And because it all the currency is only worth which what it can fetch on the market, it's sold as if it were a commodity when it isn't. This is very interesting stuff. We're on the air with Ellen Brown. Go check out Web of Debt, uh, webofdebt.com, also Gail Owen, and um, getting a very interesting history lesson here and refreshment on how this economic mess that we're currently in all got started. While I'm here, I just wanted to say thank you to um, the good guys that make Waking Up in America possible. One of them is Stardust. Uh, their telephone number is 828-665-0411. What do these people do? Really reasonable web advertising. No kidding. 100,000 high-quality people that have, like, triple opted in. Talk to Raw, 828-665-0411. Also, Steve and Diana are waiting for you on the beach in Mexico, San Pancho, which is about 45 minutes north of um, Puerto Vallarta. Very peaceful area, um, very wonderful, very beautiful, um, great hospitality, probably a Mexico of about 50 years ago. So you'll love it in San Pancho. Say that Val at Waking Up in America sent you, and you can do that on any of these ads. There's a discount waiting for you when you do that. Their telephone number, 971-239-4120 for bungalows by the beach. Beautiful little bungalows, swimming pool, little kitchens. Charming host, 971-239-4120. Steve and Diana, you go. There you go. And as I said, we're on the air with Ellen Brown and Gail Ellen. I said Ellen Brown and Gail Ellen, and I just realized how, <laughs> how appropriate it was that you're both on the show today. The Ellens have arrived. Um, so <laughs> let's go back. Gail, have you got another question you'd like you know, to pop? Well, the other thing is I know... Uh, um, Ellen can maybe tell us about a successful private bank in the United States. I think it's in North Dakota, but how that works and how it's been successful and how it it has it established itself. Right. Uh, we for a hundred years before the American Revolution, uh, the colonists issued their own money, and then that power was taken away from. And the most successful of that system was in Pennsylvania, where the Pennsylvania colonists owned a bank. It, so it was the government that owned the bank. Well, right now there's only one state in the country that owns a bank. That's in North Dakota. They are one of four states that's actually solvent. Forty-six of 50 states could have to file for bankruptcy because they haven't been able to balance their budgets. And in North Dakota, of course, this, these are isolated farmers. I mean, it's an unlikely candidate for a state that would be doing so well. They actually have a $1.2 billion surplus. They have lots of money for uh, student loans. They make loans to farmers. And which state is this? North Dakota. North Dakota, interesting. So what they did was in 1919, the farmers got together, what was called the Nonpartisan League. They had people from all persuasions got together. They wanted to keep their money in state. It had been going out of state to the Wall Street bankers and the railroad men. 
So they got together and persuaded their legislators to put all the state's revenues in this one bank called the Bank of North Dakota, which the state owns. And then, so now they can, um, they have lots of credit. This, this, when, when you own a bank, people might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, they still just have the revenues they had. But the way banking works is that you take those revenues, make them your reserves, and then you get to leverage them into 10 times or more that sum in loans. So now suddenly they have 10 times as much money as they had before, and they can lend that out. And what they could do is they could lend it to themselves. Uh, theoretically, they could lend it to themselves interest-free, roll the loans over indefinitely. In other words, they actually have the power to issue their own currency. That's <laughs> very clever. But it, but they're, it's dollars. You know, it's not like they're dealing in community currency or anything. That's clever. Is this, is this the only state you said, or did you say there were others? It's the only state, but you could do it. At, well, there's like a city. Newark, New Jersey has a, has owns a bank, which they, it's a development bank, and they... They've fanned, I think, a million dollars into six million dollars in loans, which they lend to businesses in the city. But you could do it, even say a, a state university. How would the money gather if you were rolling over the loans? How do you mean? Well, you said that they were, would be interest-free loans that they would roll over. I'm wondering how they would expand inside if if the, um, the loans are permanently on call, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that that's a point. I mean that. Even banks have that problem. You know, they, they're they fully loaned up. Even though they're allowed to lend ten times what they have, once they've lent that, unless those people pay back, they can't make more loans, unless what they used to do is they sold them all off to investors, and that's how they made more and more loans. Well, North Dakota must be paying, the people must be paying back, huh? Yeah, right. Uh, no, I, I don't think they do lend to themselves and roll it over. And okay, that's good because it almost, I was <laughs> to figure out how that could be successful <laughs> but, but in the long term. But the thing is that a state could, um, you, you know, you can pay it back when you've got the money. In other words, you, you don't, it's not like you have a big Wall Street bank leering over you demanding interest all the time. That's amazing. So we do have a working example in the United States of America. It's very interesting that you should bring this up. I was actually searching through my emails. I received an email yesterday on an 88-year-old mayor in, like, are you still on, Gail? Yes. Missouliana or something like that. Did I send you that email about that 88-year-old mayor? No, I didn't get it. Okay, so this woman has been elected to office 11 times. She's the mayor of a city in Canada. She is also 88 years old and plays ice hockey, just to give you an idea of who we're dealing with. Wow. And her city is totally solvent. It's not only solvent, it has $700 million in reserves. Wow, and how did she do that? When did she do that exactly? <laughs> she did it by, by paying for things up front. She did it by formally creating circumstances and jobs. I'd actually rather um, find the email and I'll send it to you because she did it by actually not spending her future. If I had to capsulize the whole thing, it would be she didn't spend the town's future. She created it. They actually have a vision plan, okay, um, Ellen, where, the, where they have a whole vision of what the town looks like in 20 years. So she's working into the future, not fixing up the past. Well, that's the way a credit system works. You you put your project, on, you write it on one side of your books. It's called accrual accounting or double-entry bookkeeping. You write it on one side of your books as if it was already done, and then you write the amount of money it's going to take on the other side, and then you draw on that account, pay your workers and materials, build the thing, 
And then the profits from the thing you just built go back to pay off the loan. It's just a question of where the credit originates. Instead of thinking that you have to have this pool of money off somewhere that you have to go find and borrow it from someone else, you can create that credit yourself. It's all just accounting entries. Our money system is just accounting entries. You know, another thing that's happened here in America is that individuals have really over over credited themselves. They've gotten into this mess of, you know, credit card debt and then paying fees of up to 29%. More now, Gail. I forgot to break the bad news to you. It's up like 33 in, uh-huh. in Iowa. And it's right. this vicious circle. Uh, you know, how, how are they going to get out of it, and how can that be stopped, and how can the banks continue to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, and I've heard the, the blame has been placed on the consumers for buying too much. Right. right? But actually, we, I, I've seen statistics. We actually... People are buying fewer luxury goods than they did 30 years ago. Most of those loans are going for their houses because housing just shot up and if you have to have a place to live. or In other words, the, the essentials got more expensive. Food got more expensive and gas got more expensive. So really the problem is the people, the workers, are not getting the fruits of their own labor. It's all, all those profits are being sucked off the top. So to make up the difference between what people earn and the gross, well, there's actually, in 2006, what people earned came to $10 trillion, and our gross domestic product was $13 trillion. So we did not make enough money to buy our own products that we make. So we had to borrow, and but we bought them. So we had to borrow that extra $3 trillion from banks. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting thing here. We're going to be taking a break, but the point you brought up, Gail, really underlies the fact that once you dig into this deeper, and as we all know, I've been going through some credit challenges here. I think that's what they call it. Try a few foreclosures and not enough money to pay all the bills. You get to find out how the mechanisms in this thing work, and I can tell you for a fact that I was encouraged to um, use up my credit limit. I was invited to transfer funds in onto credit cards and things of that nature. And I thought I was too smart for it. I thought I had it all handled. I thought I had it figured out. (laughs) So I'm very grateful to have Ellen Brown on here today because I'm learning more. And, I'm Gail, I know you're probably going to be leaving shortly, so I just wanted to acknowledge that Gail may not be here after the half hour. And I wanted to go to Diamond Alignment because this is a divine transmission, and I don't know of a conversation more in the world deserves a divine transmission than the web of debt. So with that, here we go. We live in a world that is more alive with possibility than ever before in history. Yet it is easy to get lost in the confusion and chaos of such an accelerated world. How do we stay connected and aligned with the unlimited potential that lies within us and soar in these exciting yet challenging times? Diamond Alignment, a sacred technology for the 21st century, offers high-speed connection and alignment with this divine power within, both convenient and profound. The six-minute multi-sensory diamond experience delivered via the internet clears your mind, relaxes your body, 
and creates inner peace no matter what is going on around you. The Diamond Alignment Experience effortlessly keeps you charged with joy and equanimity and greater focus and clarity throughout your day. When you experience the expansive energy of Diamond Alignment, you activate the unlimited wealth and potential within you. Basically, if you listen to this transmission over a period of time, um, a lot of people have similar reactions, and mine is that usually that my... Um, my body starts to relax, and I'm especially aware of my inner core, and I notice normally that my shoulders go down. Some people have had um, visions. Some people experience nothing from it. If you experience something from it, check it out at diamondalignment.com. If you want a little refresher, hop over to our website at wakingupinamerica.com, and you scroll down to the bottom of the page. If you click on the Diamond Alignment logo at the bottom of the page, you'll actually be put back into this transmission again. And um, if you'd like to experience the whole transmission on your own name, there's a way for you to sign that up down there. While you're at the website, also check out Race for the Rainforest. And Race for the Rainforest, when you go in there, um, you can you go in there and you click, and there's a way for you to sign up for your Race to the Rainforest. And what happens is you go in there and click whether you want marine wetlands, American prairie, or um, oceans for your your choice. And when you click in there, you'll actually be able to save like 7 to 10 square feet and you'll be matched. So slowly but surely we can improve the rainforest. We can we can clean up the oceans. <laughs> you know what trash bins they are if you saw that LA Times article. Oh, my God. Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do to make a difference and they don't have to be totally astounding and earth-shaking. You can just start picking up paper when you're walking down the street, throw it in the trash. There's a lot of things to do that don't cost a cent. It's a unawareness, you know, you'll develop it as you go along if you don't have it already. Hang around people that have it and you'll catch it way faster. <laughs> um, Gail, are you still here? No? So, um, but I... I thought that alignment was great. I, I pardon? Was there. I thought that alignment was great. I, I could feel that. Yeah. Is that what, did you get a relaxing or what happened for you? I, well, I just went out there. Yeah. You know, I, I actually could... went to India once for a... <laughs> Nine-day wonder. It was the most amazing experience of my life. Um, yeah, so. So what was the most amazing experience? This is a perfect lead-in, God knows. What was the most amazing experience of your life? Well, it was actually, a, a, we, I used to live in, I, my ex-husband was in the Foreign Service for 11 years, so we lived in different countries, and we lived in Kenya, and there was a Brahma Kumari Center there, which is a Hindu meditation. It's ah. a Raja Yoga, where you just meditate on a point. So they were going to India for their yearly trek, and so I went along, and uh, we just met, we just meditated on a point for a week, and then the founder, who is now deceased, went into a or uh, uh, one of the nuns went into trance, and and the founder spoke through her for hours and hours, and I got really sleepy at like <laughs> in the morning, and I went back to my room and I fell asleep, and then I woke up and there was this light coming out of my chest. Oh my God! Really? Yeah. So for t- for two days after that, I was just in this altered state where it was just. Wild. What you, if you looked out of your chest? What did it look like? Were you glowing or? Well, it was like the light, there was a light on in the like somebody turned the light on in the room, but huh. there wasn't any light. Yeah. So I rushed back to the 
to the thing, and they were just closing up. And, and then, but for the next two days, I was just one with everything. I mean, it was those things you read about. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So I know it's happened. It was, and then when I got on the plane, it all went away. It was sort of like, well, now you've seen it. Now you know what you're. Now you know what the human. You know, human, it's possible. Yeah, what we're aiming towards. So <laughs> get busy. <laughs> this is like, like 1976, right? I go to do the grocery shopping for my little family, my husband and my little family, right? And I go to, I go to Ralph's Market over in Westwood, and I walk in the market and I do my shopping, and I'm standing at the line. And all of a sudden, I'm head over heels in love with a funny little short bus truck driver that's right in front of me. And I, I'm, like, so amazed that I'm so in love with this man. And I look around, and I'm in love with everybody in the whole place, the whole market. They're picking up cantaloupes. I'm in love with them, the way they, whatever. <laughs> and it was like I just never wanted it to go away again. Uh-huh. And then it was gone. And it was like, yeah. oh, okay. My first game that I ever bowled, strikes, uh-huh. all strikes. Knocked the whole thing out of the box, right? First game. After that, never even came close. First arrow I shot in an archery, bullseye. I got quite good at that, but I used to twang my elbow. So many things I've done. First bridge hand, grand slam. And it's just like just exactly like what you said. It's a demonstration of what is possible uh-huh. wherever you play or whatever you do. And then I think that's kind of like almost a call for you in a way. No, I agree, because then it keeps you, because you can get pretty heavy and depressed and down on things, but as long as you've had that vision, you kind of, you always drift back into that, and it's important, those little moments of meditation where you tune back in, because you can easily forget, unless you (laughs) make conscious effort. You heard my strange noise, easy is easy in the middle of some of the things that we've been dished. But I have to tell you, when um, when Bush took the presidency, I was so enraged I could not see straight. I was. Do you know? Have you ever heard of Tourette's syndrome? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so I felt that I was I had Tourette's syndrome that hadn't matured into adult years, and that everything I believed in was dashed in a, a very short period of time, including telling my children, "Don't worry, my dears, we have the Supreme Court." You know. And I was just like, it didn't even occur to me that a man that was elected president wouldn't be president. Al Gore just actually won the popular vote. The point that we're getting at here, I think, though, is it's, I actually have to thank the Bush years for turning me into the terrific human being that I've emerged to now. Yeah, well, you need some some opposition to... Well, to find me. It was, well, like, what do you stand for? Right, right. And didn't didn't I know I I noticed that with a lot of the books on your website at debt of web webofdebt.com that a lot of the books are actually alternative healing books and things of that nature. So um, this this new book is almost um, out of your normal pattern. What moved you to write it? Um, well, I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be a lawyer. I just figured out that you couldn't. You couldn't support yourself as a writer as a young person, so I finally went to law school. Um, but I had researched that early early on. There were three things that interested me. Health, spirituality, like what the heck were we doing here? Right. And um, and the Federal Reserve, the whole <laughs> the interesting combination. Well, it was because I had read, I think I read Eustace Mullins' book. and You know, I had read some things that alluded I'm sorry, which book? to that. Uh, Eustace Mullins wrote a book called The Federal Reserve, and he wrote another book called uh, Murder by Injection. I read that one on Jekyll Island. 
you know. Oh, that's uh, uh, by Ed Griffin. Yeah, I, re- I read that one yeah. later. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was written in 90... 90-something. It was later, anyway. But it it was really what woke me up. Right. So, so, I, so I tried to research that, but at that time we didn't have the Internet, and you just couldn't get the end, to the end of it, you know, you'd... You'd have some question in your mind, but you just couldn't find the answer to it. Or the book would be out of the library or whatever. It was very limited research in those days. Um, so then in 2000, I tried it again after I had, uh, well, I got divorced in, in 2000 and came back to the States and uh, realized that was a hot issue. And um, so I, I started researching it again, and, the, and then you could find the answers. I mean, it was quite remarkable that you could. Are you re- referring to the Federal Reserve now being a hot issue, or what are you referring to? Uh, right, the, 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 the whole money system. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. And where money comes from. and uh, I mean, I had just... Uh, it doesn't it. just come from the tooth fairy, right? Uh, right. It doesn't come from where people think at all. Yeah, it should. It it's should so interesting come. to really clearly get you talking about accounting pages. Right. Today, all money is, is all credit is, is your promise to pay in the future. You're monetizing your future promise to repay. And what a bank does is they pretend to have money that they don't have. The seller wants his money now. The buyer doesn't have it. The buyer says, let me pay you over time and I'll pay you extra in the form of interest. But the seller doesn't necessarily know the buyer. So he doesn't trust them, but but they they would both trust this third party, this bank that's been around forever in the town. So the bank says, "Okay, I'll pretend that I, I have the money. I'll, I'll I'll write these checks, and you'll pay me back over time. And I'm allowed to do this because I'm a certified card carrying bank. Um, but the problem is that the uh, the bank doesn't. That, that sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> you know, if the if the buyer doesn't pay back, then the bank has to take it out of reserves. Or anyway, the ideal party to oversee these agreements is actually the government. I mean, it's really a legal agreement, so it should really be the judiciary or or huh. a wing of government. There should be a fourth branch of government. The Federal Reserve acts like it's a fourth branch of government, but it's how do we get it back? By the way, how do we take that back? Well, they. The Federal Reserve Act says at the end that Congress can change it at any time or rescind it. So what about going back on the gold standard? Would this alter this? That won't work. Why is that? Well, the gold standard is actually what allowed the bankers to pull this whole ruse off. I mean, there's two possibilities. Either you have a gold-backed currency, which means... Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, actually. Which means you can take your paper dollars in and get gold for them. Yeah. So that's what we did have. And in 1933, when nobody trusted the banks anymore, at that point... The dollar was forty percent backed by gold, so that meant uh, every time somebody brought two dollars in to get their gold, three dollars worth of loans had to be called in. So the money supply just was shrinking and shrinking. Yeah, except the point where they weren't pulling money out at that fast. As I know, at one time they were only pulling like five percent out of the gold out. Well, but that's what when they or in nineteen seventy one we were still on a gold standard internationally, and. It, then people started not trusting the United States to have the money because we were in the Vietnam War and we were going into debt. So de Gaulle um, traded in all his dollars for gold. A huge chunk of gold went over oh. to France. And then England tried to do it. And so Nixon, that would have you know, pretty much wiped us out. So Nixon said, sorry, we're out. I mean, there just wasn't enough gold. Oh, gosh, okay. All the dollars. 
that were supposedly backed by it. So the other option is to have a 100% gold standard, which means basically you're dealing in gold. But assuming you did that, where are you going to get the gold? Let's say most of the gold is worn around the necks of people in India and things like that. So, so you're going to go over there and say, sell me your gold. And the Indian woman says, well, what are you going to pay me with? And you say, well, here, take these paper dollars. And the Indian woman says, but your paper dollars aren't going to be worth anything, right? Because only gold is going to be money. In other words, there's no way to get to turn our $13 trillion worth of dollars that are out there, including electronic dollars, et cetera, to turn that into gold. How are you going to, mm. unless you just confiscate all the gold in the United States, well, those the people who hold the gold, including me, are not going to be real happy about that. Well, isn't there certain kinds of gold that are registered and other kinds that aren't, and they could only reclaim the unregistered gold or something like that? I don't quite remember how it goes, but I don't know. I mean, either way, you don't want to. That doesn't seem fair. They're confiscating people's gold. What? Just so we'll have a have a money supply. <laughs> and even then, what are you going to? I mean, at that point, your gold is going to be worth many thousands of dollars an ounce. So that if you want to trade in pennies, it's going to be a speck of dust that's liable to get lost in your purse. And um, it's, it really bears no relationship to the real market value of gold. I mean, it would be so far out there. That what's the point? I mean, why, be, why gold? Why not? It's, the, the main problem is gold is so easily manipulated. It's manipulated right now. It should actually be worth more than $1,000 an ounce, but they, they jump all over it. You can watch those the gold charts in it, you can see that it's manipulated. It just shoots right down at 54 times a day for no good reason. So if the price of gold is dropped down, then um, that the value of things suddenly change. Isn't this kind of the same of what's been going on with real estate? I think we've been manipulated the heck with the real estate and all the, what do they call them, toxic loans and stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, I totally, <laughs> I started, I've, I've been starting to write a book called Swimming with Alligators, the Credit Game, just uh-huh. FYI, okay? So I'm putting that on the air that I'm actually doing that. In the first chapter, my experience of, in the early years of credit, it was very clear to me what was going on. As credit went on, then it became more and more complicated for me because we had all the, we had these pages and pages and pages of documents with print that was probably two-point and then you get held accountable for something you couldn't read or could barely read like four or five years later after after you've gone through the process, you know. And the process is you're given a credit card at zero to yeah, 9%, let's say, somewhere you're invited there and you're given it. I have like, I have like three or four businesses. <clears throat> I had a credit card for each one of my businesses. Um, I had some of them with the same company so that if for any reason I was late on one card, they shut down all the cards. So I had become, I was, it was almost like credit, available credit was a part of my checking account. And I tell you, Ellen, a lot of people feel that way. It's a, when you're sold it long enough, it's like it becomes a part of your reserve. So when, and then credit score is, is calculated in there. My credit score was at 740 when this whole thing started two years ago. So, and the reason I didn't have 800 or something like that was because I had all these different business cards. So even though they're, they're business cards, they still go back on your personal credit, at least when they're considering you about who's responsible for the debt and stuff like that. Okay? 
So, um, you know, very, very interesting stuff going on here um, with you get called off, you get invited to transfer your money. If you miss a payment, your interest rate can go from zero to 30% in a second. You can, it can affect all of your other cards. Then they commune with each other. So if you've had problems with one card or something like that but not with your other ones, now the other cards who you've paid on a regular basis are beginning to decrease your credit limit, which is now making your credit score go lower because <clears throat> you don't have the um, – most people don't know this, but you don't borrow a whole credit card when you're using it for safety's sake. You do 30 to 40%. So if you have 30 to 40% of a $10,000 card, that means you've borrowed 3000 3, to 4000 on it. <clears throat> and so you're at 30 to 40%. If the – uh, if the card issuer decides to automatically decrease your credit limit, let's say that's what happened with Lowe's on my Lowe's card, all of a sudden it was decreased from 4000 to 2100 when the amount that I owed was 2100 So it was slightly over 50% was where I was standing. But then they decreased my credit limit down on top of it. So now every time I make a payment, they decrease my credit limit. So I have... It looks like I'm always 100% borrowed out on the card. Yeah. So these kinds of things have been put into play, and then by the time they get done adding late charges and over-limit fees, which they have now created because they have lowered your credit limit, so that it's just sitting right on top of what you owe them, now you're liable to get big fees. I think, Ellen, I don't know if you know this or not, but I finally found out why that works that way. Do you have any idea? No. So why it works that way is because they want to sell you. They know this was going to happen. <laughs> this was planned. This was pre-planned. <clears throat> now you're going to default, okay? And you're going to default because there's absolutely no way that you can pay all the $39 char- dollars charges and things like that, and now you have no credit, so you're paying cash for everything in your life, and the squeeze is on. Okay? So the interest, there's a whole process that you go through about that, but the one that really... Fred Boyles, bless your heart, explained it to me. He explained to me that they understood that this was going to be happening. So if they take you from 40% to you have no credit, and then um, you get an overlate fee or something like overdue fee or something like that, it begins to stack up and it moves up so fast it would be almost impossible for you to even make arrangements on it. Okay, because it's it's coming in from all different kinds of stuff: thirty-nine dollars here and thirty-nine there. So on a $15 or $20 late payment, you can be owing $39 twice, $78 a pop if something doesn't go according to plan. They, they want you to default in order to increase the... Increase the liability. Limit. Okay, and when they increase the liability happens because then they're, they're already planned to bundle and sell these things. They're high-risk. They're high-risk loans now. They've turned an ordinary thing into a high-risk loan. So high-risk loans actually have very good interest rates. So they bundle and sell your loans to other people so that they can collect them, okay? So what started out is the $800 debt. What was it I heard? The most outrageous one I heard was a $200 debt that turned into a $1,300 debt. That's the most outrageous one I heard. And what happens if you wait long enough, they actually kind of lose it and you can do something called a settlement. And so the person that owed $200 after they've gotten their credit thrashed 
and the thugs have come out and worked them over, you can actually then usually settle that debt for maybe 150, something like that. But by then, your credit's been winged all over the place. Wow. Well, I I think it's a fundamental flaw in our whole way of living. I mean, everybody thinks that their money has to make money and that you have to um, set aside – your money has to make money for old age because nobody's going to watch out for you and there's no way – Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's truly the myth. So they're looking for – like you said, they're looking for the high-risk investments, strangely. The pension funds are looking for the high-risk investments because – They've already got these commitments to pay 10% or so, and then all it used to be you could find safe investments at 10%, and now suddenly the safe investments are down to 2%. So where are you going to? How are you going to meet your commitments? You have to start getting into this risky stuff. Yeah. So there's an appetite, as they say, for for risk, which means investors are looking for risk. So they're looking for these really bad deals. Um, which then and then they got into that whole derivative thing where they sell off the risk to yet another group of investors. That's the one I'm talking about right there. Yeah, those are the credit default swaps. So and it's people are credit default swap. because they actually want the risk, which they don't know what they're getting. Municipal governments do that, or you know, school boards. I mean, these people ran for the school board because they wanted to help their kids. They don't know anything about finance. And the big Wall Street man comes in and says, oh, you're going to need some of these credit default swaps, and they pay a real good return here. And they they don't know what they're getting into at all. Mm. All they're trying to do is meet these commitments that are growing exponentially. And what we really need is to a, a whole different system. In Europe, you don't even have to go as far as communist countries, but even in Europe, they, they, in many countries, they have... Ad, or Japan says, say has adequate pensions, so that oh. the, the government provides your pension, and not only does that help the people, so they don't have to be scrambling all this time for finding these investments, but it helps the businesses because our businesses are challenged. Or so when the government provides the pension, yeah, our, you- our businesses have to compete with Japanese businesses where the government provides the pensions, so the businesses don't. They don't have to worry about medical care. They don't have to So that would be why everybody would be screaming socialism, right? Well, it's uh, in Japan they call it a mixed economy. You know, it's half it's very capitalist in many ways. There's certainly not a planned economy. What do you consider um social security? Um I mean, since you actually pay it yourself, I don't know. It's not really. I don't know what it. What it but to, for the government to pay the pension, they'd actually have to be profitable. Uh, the or would they just keep no, making that money? Not really. This is what I started to say that about. We in 2006, for instance, we had a 2006 gross domestic product, and we had a. I'm sorry. We had a 13 trillion dollar gross domestic product. We had a 10 trillion dollar income. We were missing $3 trillion, which was borrowed from banks, which created it on their books. They create the money on their books. That's where money comes from. If we didn't allow banks privately to create our money supply, the government could create $3 trillion without causing hyperinflation. Huh. And so what you could do a lot with $3 trillion. I mean, you could cover your pensions there. But actually, the government can create more than that. And besides, many of the things that the government uses money for could be productive. For instance, so why aren't you Secretary of the Treasury? 
Seriously, what would we, there's been a lot of stuff said about Timothy Geithner. Do you have any comments? Uh, well, I I like to think positively about all those people. I mean, he looks the poor thing, don't you think? He does <laughs> look a little stressed out. I mean, he doesn't look like Alan Greenspan at all, or like um, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Henry Paulson. I mean, they they were so confident and shifty eyed, and Geithner uh-huh. just looks a little adorable. Confused. Actually, I yeah, thought. But... No, I agree. And Ben Bernanke looks. Adore. I mean, don't you feel he's got those great big eyes? Well, I have to tell you, I really did enjoy looking at the interview with Ben Bernanke. Not Ben Bernanke. Who's the one that came before? Alan Greenspan. I'm sorry, who? Alan Greenspan. Yeah, I, had a- I, I enjoyed seeing Alan Greenspan and his wife in, a, in an interview. Uh-huh. And I thought it was really very interesting. I mean, the guy just lived in those forms. And I, I don't think that he was evil. No, he was actually very good at what he did. I, I, when Greens, or when Bernanke became head of the Fed, he was actually criticized for being too forthright because the market doesn't want to know what the Fed's going to do because that, then they get all rattled, you know, <laughs> right. and then they jump in and sell. So somebody said, if you're if you're on CNBC or something, if you're going to be the wizard, you have to stay behind the curtain. I mean, Absolutely. That, was, that was in the job description that you were supposed to be very mysterious if you were head of the Fed. Well, I thought I thought he did a good job of it, and I. I haven't read his book, and I, I know he's been accused of causing the whole mess, and it seems like that's an accusatory position. It seems to me like the whole mess got started way before our time. Um, so if yeah, if you were to put out, we've got like a minute or two left here. Let's say a minute left. So in the next minute, besides um, people visiting your website. Okay, here's my four-point plan for getting yeah, out of this good. mess. Um, we need to go back to public credit public credit system. And the way we can get there is, first of all, I think we should have state-owned banks. Every state should own a bank. Or we could, you could have municipally-owned banks. Or even universities could own, own a bank yes. where they put all the revenues in, in one bank and then they can create their own credit. They can magne- uh, leverage that into many times that sum in loans. Um, another uh, option is to nationalize the Federal Reserve. Make nationalize the Federal Reserve, okay. Make it actually the fourth branch of government, which is yes, another act. I agree. Them, but they don't have um, transparency. I mean, there's... No, I got it. Can't. Yeah. Um, number three is to, without actually nationalizing the Fed, you can use the Fed um, because they have agreed to rebate their profits. That was important. I didn't know that. Yeah. So so the, I think the whole stimulus plan plan should be funded through the Federal Reserve. And what's the fourth one really fast? The fourth one is instead of um, instead of bailing out the banks, put them through bankruptcy. Aha! Put the banks through bankruptcy. I've said that over the music. I've been on the air with Ellen Brown. Webofdebt.com. Go visit it. Um, this program has been brought to you by the Golden Heart Foundation in association with Kirkguard Media. Our radio partners, ConeyCompany.com, Mona V, Max GXL, Dr. James Murphy and Memoriam. Thank you to the team at Voice America and to Bent Migan for our theme music, Almost Ordinary People. Next week, invite a friend to listen. Write us at Val at WakingUpInAmerica.com. Remember, Sidious, Altius, Fortius, and you go find this Ellen Brown because she's got plenty to say. She's written a lot of books. She's terrific. Thank you so much for listening, and have your friends join next week. Bye. We're almost ordinary people With extraordinary plans 
Thank you for joining us today for Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. Waking Up in America can be heard live every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific Time on voiceamerica.com, and Valerie welcomes all emails at heavenincorporated.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.